You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, listeners. Did you know that patrons of this show are eligible to win a prize with a $160 value on December 1st? As many of you may know, patrons at patreon.com slash historicalblindness get this show ad-free. That's right. Patrons like my newest patrons, Miri, Richard, Christopher, Moira, Tiffany, and Omar, aren't hearing this when they listen to this episode using their unique RSS link. Instead, they click play and it goes right into the cold open. And more than that, they get the episodes early, usually a day early for the lowest tier of a buck a month, but four days early for patrons who pledge at $3 a month and higher. And they find exclusive blind spot minisodes in their feeds, like last week's episode on the GOP's efforts to prove election fraud in the 1960 election and Richard Nixon's concession to JFK. What you might not know, though, is that I'm also doing a giveaway on December 1st, when I'll put the names of all active patrons into a bowl and have my daughter Gemma fish out a name. That patron will win a brand new set of Studio earbuds. These are their bleeding edge model, the ET, with active noise cancellation and a state-of-the-art quick charge case with magnetic cradles that holds four extra charges. I'll be making a video of Gemma picking the winner and posting it to Patreon, so go sign up at patreon.com slash historicalblindness. These earbuds were provided courtesy of Studio to promote their Black Friday sale going on now. If you visit studio.com during November 23rd to the 30th, they're giving 35% off site-wide on any purchase of their earbuds, headphones, or Bluetooth speakers. And listeners of Historical Blindness get an additional 10% off using the promo code HISTORICAL for an unbelievable 45% off right now. If you can't pledge on Patreon or don't like your 1 in 100 chance of winning my drawing, or if you just want to make sure you take advantage of this unbelievable deal, go and do some holiday shopping at studio.com right now and use the promo code HISTORICAL at checkout. Remember that supporting this sponsor and using my promo code directly supports this podcast, making it possible for me to do promotional giveaways to patrons like this. Now, without further delay, on to a new episode of Historical Blindness. One ruler by which to measure the success of a given presidency is by its appointment of judges, as these appointments remain long after a president leaves office, allowing a lasting influence on law and public policy. In fact, according to Jay Sekulow of the American Center for Law and Justice, court appointments are, quote, the lasting legacy of the president for every conceivable issue, end quote. By this benchmark, if you'll excuse a pun, 
and perhaps by no others, Trump's presidency can be considered a success by his party. For reference, over four years, he managed to nominate almost 300 federal judges and got more than 240 confirmed, including three Supreme Court justices. By comparison, over eight years, Obama only got about 350 confirmed, including two Supreme Court seats. This means Trump was on track to appoint nearly double the number of judges as Obama had. Now, Trump claimed in his recent quote-unquote debate with Biden that this is because Obama negligently left him seats to fill. In point of fact, Obama had been obstructed throughout his presidency by Senate Republicans, even when they did not have control of the Senate. You see, there was a long-standing practice of senatorial courtesy that said a federal court nominee for any given state must get approval from both its senators, which Republicans consistently refused to give. In 2013, Majority Leader Harry Reid exercised a quote-unquote nuclear option to circumvent their obstruction, limiting confirmation debate and requiring only a simple majority to confirm, which resulted in Obama's judge confirmation rate soaring to 90%. However, Republicans took the Senate in 2014, and new majority leader Mitch McConnell took their obstruction to unheard-of levels, reducing Obama's confirmation rate to a dismal 28% over the next two years. This was why so many seats remained to be filled when Trump took office, and McConnell, already leveraging the Democrats' own nuclear option against them, introduced a few tricks of his own. He extended the practice of requiring only a simple majority even to Supreme Court nominations, which Reid had excluded. And he declared that they would not observe senatorial courtesy, meaning essentially they would ignore a blue slip from a senator objecting to a nominee in his or her state, a completely hypocritical flip-flop from when he insisted that Republicans could use blue slips to veto any nominees. This paved the way for Trump to get judges confirmed far more easily than his Democratic predecessor. But I suppose if we're looking for who to credit or blame for the Trump administration's appointment of a quarter of all active federal judges within four years, it seems more like McConnell's legacy than Trump's. But here's the thing. Judges are meant to be nonpartisan. Of course, all people have political leanings, but judges are expected not to let their partisanship influence their interpretation of law. Therefore, clearly ideological nominees have always been controversial and even damaging to a president, especially when they are nominations to the Supreme Court of the United States. In 2009, when Obama nominated Sonia Sotomayor, Republicans objected that she was a liberal judicial activist, and 31 of them voted nay on her confirmation. But Dems still managed to get her confirmed with a supermajority of 67 votes, surpassing even the 60 votes needed. Then in 2010, conscious of the Senate fight that might result from a controversial nominee, Obama nominated the moderate Alina Kagan and was criticized by his own party for it, since she would be replacing John Paul Stevens, who was considered by many the most liberal-leaning justice on the bench. 
But despite this concession of nominating a moderate even while his party held the majority and he could have gotten a liberal-leaning justice confirmed, he faced an uphill battle with Senate Republicans, who seemed determined to object to any nominee, resulting in an even more hard-won confirmation with only 63 yay votes for Kagan. Come March 2016, a full eight months before the election of a new president and ten months before the end of Obama's final term, sitting conservative Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia passed away unexpectedly of natural causes in his sleep. Trying to avoid another controversy, Obama nominated another moderate, Merrick Garland. This time, McConnell had a firm stranglehold on the Senate and he made the scandalous decision to simply ignore the nomination and not convene a confirmation hearing at all. He cited history to defend his decision, claiming that no Senate has confirmed a nominee from a president of an opposing party during the last year of their presidency since the 1880s. It's unclear what example of such a confirmation he's referring to in the 1880s, but it is clear that he was not telling the truth. In 1988, during the last year of Reagan's presidency, a Democrat-controlled Senate confirmed Anthony Kennedy 97-0. McConnell might object that Dems confirmed Kennedy because the moderate Kennedy was a concession, but so was the moderate Merrick Garland. And here's the thing. If we want to find an actual historical precedent for the obstruction of McConnell and his Republican Senate, we have to look much further back than the 1880s. You see, no Senate has simply refused to hold a confirmation hearing for this reason since 1853. Back then, when political parties held no resemblance to our party system today, Whig President Millard Fillmore nominated Edward Bradford in August of 1852 in election year and the Senate, controlled by the opposing party, did nothing. Then, as a lame duck, Fillmore made two more nominations, George Badger and William Miku, and the Senate majority continued to do nothing, waiting it out until the inauguration of the new president, one of their own, so that they could give him the seat to fill. And if one is not troubled by the hypocrisy of McConnell's justification for his inaction, claiming falsely that such a thing hadn't been done since the 1880s, when in fact what he was doing hadn't been done since the 1850s, then certainly one should be appalled at his subsequent flip-flop in 2020, when just days before an election his party's president was polling to lose, and of course did unequivocally lose, he rammed through a conservative nominee to the Supreme Court to fill the seat of the recently passed liberal justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, against her dying wishes, just a week before Election Day. Since these events, there has been much talk among progressives of a need to expand the Supreme Court, which liberals may characterize as a balancing of the bench, and conservatives denounce as packing the bench. So it's time to look to the history of the Supreme Court and its structure to determine what precedent there may be for its expansion and to evaluate what the case may be for doing it beyond partisan one-upsmanship.
This is historical blindness. I'm Nathaniel Lloyd, and I call this court of inquiry to order. I will have order. Bailiff, restrain that man. I will have silence in this court. As we hear this case regarding circuit riders, midnight appointments, and packed benches. In this, a history of the Supreme Court. Welcome to Historical Blindness. In discussing the controversy over McConnell's underhanded tactics to get a conservative majority of Supreme Court seats and the controversy over the prospect of a Democratic Congress expanding the court, we must first establish a baseline understanding of the formation of the Supreme Court, how its structure has changed throughout American history and why, as well as how those changes were affected. Recently, with some Democrats discussing their openness to judicial reforms like expanding the Supreme Court bench or establishing term limits for its justices, Marco Rubio, a Republican senator from Florida, has proposed a constitutional amendment to prevent more than nine seats from being added to the Supreme Court bench, which Rubio says would be quote-unquote delegitimizing and suggests would represent a quote further destabilization of essential institutions, end quote. Though, of course, he doesn't indicate how this would delegitimate or destabilize the highest court in the land. In fact, he himself admits that, quote, there is nothing magical about the number nine. It is not inherently right just because the number of seats on the Supreme Court remains unchanged since 1869, end quote. So it seems apparent that by delegitimize and destabilize, he only means that he wants to prevent the opposing party from offsetting the ill-gotten majority that conservatives have seized. So really he wants to prevent it from being stabilized. But regardless, getting an amendment passed is unlikely since it would require a supermajority vote in both houses or two-thirds of state legislatures to approve. I think I said it requires both in my last episode, but it's either or. And regardless, it's unlikely to happen. But this just highlights the fact that the number of seats on the Supreme Court is not written into our Constitution. In fact, the framers of the Constitution had little to say about the structure of the Supreme Court, preferring to leave that to the first Congress who in the Judiciary Act of 1789 established three circuits and a Supreme Court of six justices who would preside over the circuits. Even then though, senators argued for more than six justices, suggesting that a deeper bench of justices would lend the court dignity, like England's Exchequer Chamber, and that having more critical minds at work would make for better considered verdicts. In the end, though, they settled on the six, reasoning that as the country's population grew, they could always add more. Since then, seven more times, by the passage or repeal of Judiciary Acts, it has fluctuated between five and ten seats. So all it takes, all it has ever taken, is an act of Congress to add seats to the Supreme Court. 
what Rubio wants to do with an amendment is take away the ability of Congress to pass Judiciary Acts to alter the structure of the Supreme Court, which itself would be a, quote, further destabilization of essential institutions, end quote. But the question to be considered now is, what was the reasoning, historically, behind changes to the structure of the Supreme Court, and how does it reflect on the case for expanding the Supreme Court today? The first of these changes to the structure of the Supreme Court came just after the contentious election of 1800, about which I spoke so much in my episode on Illuminati conspiracy theories in America. And the Judiciary Act of 1801 was extremely controversial then and even today. The act passed by lame duck Federalists after their party's power had essentially been obliterated with John Adams' defeat in the recent election, was portrayed by Thomas Jefferson as a last-ditch effort by Federalists to entrench their power institutionally in the judicial branch of government. It looked suspicious that it had been passed with such haste less than a month before Jefferson's inauguration creating with the stroke of a pen several new circuit courts and with them more than 20 new judge seats, 18 of which Adams managed to fill with so-called, quote, midnight appointments, end quote, made between February 20th and March 4th, literally the day before Jefferson took office. And not only did this act dramatically expand the federal court system and pack it with Federalists, it also made it more difficult for Jefferson to put any man of his own on the Supreme Court by establishing that, at the time of the next vacancy, the court would simply be reduced by one seat, bringing it from six to five justices. Adams refused to attend Jefferson's inauguration, where Jefferson actually made a conciliatory plea to his opponents for national unity. Upon taking office, he found some of these midnight commissions signed and undelivered, and he refused to deliver them, instead appointing men of his own to some of these judgeships. Not only that, he immediately set about working with his party to repeal the Judiciary Act of 1801, which he succeeded in doing, reversing the expansion of the federal circuit courts and restoring the size of the Supreme Court. A few years later, when Federalist Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase publicly expressed his dissatisfaction with the act's repeal, Jefferson called his remarks quote-unquote seditious and encouraged the House of Representatives to impeach him, which they did. This was the first and only time a sitting Supreme Court justice was impeached. For about a century, Historians gobbled up Jefferson's version of the so-called Midnight Judges Act, vilifying Adams for abusing his power to embed federalism in the courts. But in the 20th century, this view of the act has been questioned. In point of fact, the act had been written before Federalists lost their power in the election, and all of its provisions were enacted to address the real concerns of Supreme Court justices. The way the court system had been established in 1789, the Supreme Court was the highest appellate court, but some of its justices were also required to sit as trial judges in the circuit courts. 
This meant that justices had to, quote, ride the circuit, end quote, or travel sometimes great distances in inclement weather in order to judge cases in the various circuit courts. And it also meant that when some of the same cases they had presided over on the circuit were appealed, they were appealing to the same judge who had already decided the case. While it was believed that Supreme Court justices would become better judges by being out there, sitting in courtrooms all across the country, justices complained that the burden of constant travel prevented them from cultivating their knowledge of the law through study. Basically, time they spent on the road, they said, would be better spent in a library. And the fact that the process frequently resulted in them reviewing their own decisions shows it was poorly thought out. In practice, circuit courts often could not even be convened because the Supreme Court justice who was supposed to preside did not show up. So, although the making of midnight appointments placing mostly his own loyal Federalists into judgeships remains questionable, the Judiciary Act of 1801 can be seen as a clear attempt to address these problems by creating the office of the circuit court judge. And since Supreme Court justices would no longer need to ride the circuit, it stood to reason they also would not need so many justices, thus the reduction in seats. Perhaps the most important lesson to take from this episode, however, can be found in a petition to Congress by the Supreme Court in 1792, asking for Congress to fix the court. In their appeal, they referred to the, quote, general and well-founded opinion, end quote, that the Judiciary Act of 1789 that had created the court, quote, was to be considered as introducing a temporary expedient rather than a permanent system, and that it would be revised, end quote. Here, the first Supreme Court justices themselves indicate that the structure of the Supreme Court was not set in stone at its creation. Rather, it was meant to be an evolving institution, changing with the needs of the country. At first, the court expanded specifically because of the growth of the country. After the repeal of the Judiciary Act of 1801, justices were once again required to ride the circuit. But as new circuit courts were added, so also were new Supreme Court justices to ease the burden. With the Seventh Circuit Act of 1807, another circuit was added and thus another Supreme Court justice. Then, during Andrew Jackson's administration, the Eighth and Ninth Circuits Act of 1837 added a couple more, bringing the number of justices to nine. If we had continued to keep the number of seats on the bench proportional to the number of regional circuits, then we would have 12 or 13 justices by now. But this did not remain the basis for the Supreme Court's structure. A Tenth Circuit and thus a Tenth Justice were added briefly during the Civil War, but in 1866, the Judicial Circuits Act reduced the number of circuits to nine and the number of Supreme Court seats to seven. This act was really a redistricting effort to minimize the influence of southern slaveholding states, which because of the way circuits had been drawn had previously dominated the Supreme Court. 
Finally, in 1869, another Judiciary Act set the number of justices at nine and once more created circuit court judges who would sit with district court judges to hear appeals, thus greatly reducing the burden placed on Supreme Court justices of having to ride the circuit. One would think that after this all was well. Thus divorced from the circuit courts, nine justices should have been plenty to hear whatever higher appeal cases arose, especially since only six of those justices were needed to form a quorum, the minimum number assembled to be considered valid. But the country was growing still, and so was the court's workload. By the late 19th century, with around 600 new cases being filed a year, they were running a backlog of nearly 2,000 cases. Once again, the court appealed to Congress, and many believed then that the Supreme Court should be expanded to 11 or even 18 justices in order to handle their caseload. One Senator Manning even proposed that it be expanded to 21 justices, composed of three panels of seven justices each. In the end, though, instead of expanding the bench, Congress chose to reduce the caseload, first in the Judiciary Act of 1891 by creating a Court of Appeals for every circuit, and then in 1916 by giving the Supreme Court the right to decline to review cases. So rather than increase the ability of the highest court to take on more cases, they enabled it to simply refuse to consider cases. So the Supreme Court went from hearing arguments on nearly 100% of the cases brought before it to considering only around 1% of petitions. Now for a brief intermission. There is a small nation built in a swamp that sits in the corner of Europe. It's nestled between the rivers and the sea prone to disastrous flooding and hemmed in on all sides by big, powerful countries who often take the bragging rights when it comes to European history. This country is the Netherlands, and it's the most influential swamp in the world. History of the Netherlands is a bi-weekly show which presents a chronological narrative history of the Netherlands. Over the course of its first 30-odd episodes, listeners have seen the Ice Ages come and go watched a lowlander revolt against the Roman Empire, and witnessed the inventive construction of life-saving dikes and dams. They've been there for the country's move toward urbanization, for the struggles of French and German princes vying for power, and for more workers' revolts against those princes than one could easily shake a stick at. They've even been asked to imagine what it would be like to be a herring in the North Sea. It's dark and wet. Come explore the events and characters that, over time, have transformed a boggy swamp into an amazing modern marvel. You can find History of the Netherlands at historyofthenetherlands.com and anywhere you get podcasts. What really happened on the unsinkable Titanic? What made the 1904 St. Louis Marathon the strangest event in Olympic history? Whatever became of missing boy Bobby Dunbar, 
And who was the child who returned in his place? If these questions interest you, check out the History Uncovered podcast, brought to you by the digital publisher of All That's Interesting. History Uncovered explores the strange and obscure parts of history that you definitely didn't learn about in school. Hosted by the writers and editors of All That's Interesting, the show covers a wide variety of topics, ranging from the forgotten media spectacle of cave explorer Floyd Collins' death, to the disappearance and possible cannibalization of Michael Rockefeller, to the true story that inspired The Exorcist. With more than 100 episodes, you're bound to find that they've covered a topic that's especially interesting to you. And each month, they produce a special History Happy Hour episode, examining recent news in the fields of world history and archaeology, and commemorating important historical anniversaries. Come explore the uncharted corners of the natural world and the world past by listening to History Uncovered, wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. As listeners of this show and podcasts generally, you probably take the view that learning and education are a lifelong undertaking. That makes a membership to The Great Courses Plus a fabulous gift to yourself. The Great Courses Plus has a huge variety of engaging and fascinating courses designed and taught by the best professors in their fields. And you don't need to stress about homework or exams to enjoy this learning experience. You can choose from a few different formats for how to enjoy your lectures. Listen on your mobile device like a podcast, stream them as a video on a TV, or watch on a computer while you take notes in your course's free companion guidebook. Follow my custom URL, thegreatcoursesplus.7eer.net slash hb and sign up for a 14-day free trial membership. If you like my episodes on American political history and want to learn more about U.S. politics, check out Understanding the U.S. Government, course number 50030, taught by Professor Jennifer Nicole Victor, Ph.D. of George Mason University. Over 24 lectures that average about a half hour, she runs the gamut, giving you a stronger understanding of the laws and institutions that govern us all. If you sign up by visiting my custom URL, thegreatcoursesplus.7eer.net slash hb or slash historical or slash historical blindness, all of them work, and sign up for a 14-day free trial membership, you're directly supporting this show and me and my family. You can find a link in the show notes and embrace your inner lifelong learner. 
Now, back to the show. Then came the Great Depression and Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal legislation intended to aid in the country's recovery. FDR could not contain his disappointment and reproval when the Supreme Court handed down a series of decisions in 1935 and 36 that vitiated some key centerpieces of the New Deal, such as the Railroad Retirement Act, the Agricultural Adjustment Act, the National Industrial Recovery Act, and a minimum wage law for women and children. In one of his signature fireside chats in March of 1937, he characterized the court as working at counter-purposes with the rest of the government. Last Thursday, I described the American form of government as a three-horse team provided by the Constitution to the American people so that their field might be plowed. The three horses are, of course, the three branches of government, the Congress, the executive, and the courts. Two of the horses, the Congress and the executive, are pulling in unison today. The third is not. Those who have intimated that the President of the United States is trying to drive that team overlook the simple fact that the president as chief executive is himself one of the three horses. It is the American people themselves who are in the driver's seat. It is the American people themselves who want the furrow plowed. It is the American people themselves who expect the third horse to pull in unison with the other two. To FDR, the refusal of older justices to retire was something that had not been foreseen by those who had crafted the structure of the court, allowing a bench dominated by individuals who were out of touch with the current needs of the country and the political will of the people. It is the clear intention of our public policy to provide for a constant flow of new and younger blood into the judiciary. Normally, every president appoints a large number of district and circuit judges and a few members of the Supreme Court. Until my first term, practically every president of the United States in our history had appointed at least one member of the Supreme Court. President Taft appointed five members and named the Chief Justice. President Wilson, three. President Harding, four, including a Chief Justice. President Coolidge, one. President Hoover, three, including a Chief Justice. Such a succession of appointments should have provided a court well-balanced as to age. But chance and the disinclination of individuals to leave the Supreme Bench have now given us a court in which five justices will be over 75 years of age before next June and one over 70. Thus, a sound public policy has been defeated. He proposed the automatic addition of a younger justice whenever a sitting justice reached 70 and refused to retire. 
whenever a judge or justice of any federal court has reached the age of 70 and does not avail himself of the opportunity to retire on a pension, a new member shall be appointed by the president then in office with the approval, as required by the Constitution, of the Senate of the United States. That plan has two chief purposes. By bringing into the judicial system a steady and continuing stream of new and younger blood, I hope first to make the administration of all federal justice from the bottom to the top speedier and therefore less costly. Secondly, to bring to the decision of social and economic problems younger men who have had personal experience and contact with modern facts and circumstances under which average men have to live and work. This plan will save our national constitution from hardening of the judicial arteries. This proposal was dubbed, quote-unquote, court-packing, a term you may have heard recently with the resurgent talk of expanding the bench. Those opposing this plan have sought to arouse prejudice and fear by crying that I am seeking to pack the Supreme Court and that a baneful precedent will be established. What do they mean by the words packing the Supreme Court? Let me answer this question with a bluntness that will end all honest misunderstanding of my purposes. If by that phrase, packing the court, it is charged that I wish to place on the bench spineless puppets who would disregard the law and would decide specific cases as I wished them to be decided, I make this answer, that no president fit for his office would appoint and no Senate of Honorable Men fit for their office would confirm that kind of appointees to the Supreme Court. If such a policy were enacted through legislation today, it would automatically result in the addition of three new justices, one each for Stephen Breyer, Clarence Thomas, and Samuel Alito, all of whom are 70 or older. The total number of justices would rise to 12, until some older justices retired. And if Sonia Sotomayor and John Roberts, both of whom are nearing 70, didn't retire in a few years, that number could climb higher. The number of judges to be appointed would depend wholly on the decision of present judges now over 70, or those who would subsequently reach the age of 70. If, for instance, any one of the six justices of the Supreme Court, now over the age of 70, should retire as provided under the plan, no additional place would be created. Consequently, although there never can be more than 15, there may be only 14 or 13 or 12, and there may be only nine. There is nothing novel or radical about this idea. It seeks to maintain the federal bench in full vigor. It has been discussed and approved by many persons of high authority ever since a similar proposal passed the House of Representatives 
in 1869. But no Democrats today have specifically proposed FDR's plan. Nevertheless, opponents of expanding the court still summon memories of this controversial proposal by calling any judicial reform, quote, court packing, end quote. As a bit of an aside, I recently received a critical email from a listener suggesting that I have a case of historical blindness because in my last episode I referred to the current Supreme Court as quote-unquote pact and quote conservative pact, end quote, after asserting that Trump had packed it with conservative justices. He, like some in the media, would accuse me of purposely misusing the term and of projection, since in his view I am saying conservatives are guilty of packing the court when liberals are the ones advocating quote-unquote court packing in the 1930s sense of the term. First, I'll say that I would never claim to be immune from historical blindness. I have many times during the course of making this podcast exploded myths that I myself have previously held as true or even mentioned on the show. Case in point, the midwife witch and folk healer as witch myths that I believe I ignorantly spread before discovering they were dubious this October. However, in this case, I don't believe that the word packing is or even historically was used only to refer to Supreme Court expansion. Who can forget the ribald jokes about, quote, bush packing, end quote, when George W. Bush was accused of packing the courts? Indeed, if you look to the useful Google Ingram tool, it's rather easy to see how early the term was being used. While the specific phrase court packing does indeed first peak in the literature of 1937, the phrases, quote, packed bench, end quote, and, quote, packed court, end quote, the latter of which was the term I used, were in fact far more commonly used in the 19th century. The terms packed court or packed bench were invariably used to refer to courts in which the judges were prejudiced, among whom a certain ideology dominated, coloring their decisions. An apt example of this usage can be found in the remarks of Ohio Representative Benjamin Wade regarding the Supreme Court decision on the Dred Scott case, when he called the justices, quote, packed judges, for they were packed, and I have about as little respect for a packed court as I have for a packed jury, end quote. To clarify, Wade was alleging a conflict of interest, a prejudice or bias, stating, quote, I believe the majority who concurred in the opinion were all slaveholders, and of course, if anybody was interested to give a favorable construction to the holders of that species of property, these men were interested in the question, end quote. So as it turns out, I would venture to assert that my usage of the term packed court as referring to a bench of justices dominated by ideologues was correct. Of course, that is a case that I'll have to make, and I'll attempt to do so momentarily.
FDR's quote-unquote court-packing proposal ended up fizzling out when the Supreme Court started reversing decisions and finding in favor of New Deal legislation. Some have portrayed this as the Supreme Court beating FDR at his own game, causing him to lose support for court-packing because there was no longer a need for it. However, another view is that he put political pressure on the court and got what he wanted. A historical debate has since raged over whether or not the justices of the Supreme Court at the time were actually swayed by FDR's pressure, or whether they would have ended up coming to their favorable decisions regardless. This debate between quote-unquote externalists, arguing that external pressure made the difference, and quote-unquote internalists, who assert that the justices did not allow themselves to be influenced by partisan politics, really gets at the heart of the debate surrounding both the Supreme Court's partisanship and its role among the tripartite branches of government. One common view is that regardless of the personal views of the justices, the Supreme Court is inevitably a majoritarian force, if not bowing to the will of the party in power, then at least leaning in the direction the wind seems to blow, which is sometimes in the direction of cross-partisan coalitions. The idea here is that the court must play politics to a certain degree and cannot make decisions that are unpopular with the majority as they may be viewed as illegitimate and risk congressional intervention. This view works well with the externalist idea that FDR made them reverse their decisions by appealing to the people and painting them as obstructive to the national recovery. Then there is the view that the Supreme Court justices truly are uninfluenced by politics, a perspective that somehow raises them up as superior to most people in their ability to disregard such matters, a view encouraged by the internalist interpretation of this so-called constitutional revolution of 1937. But then there is the view that the Supreme Court is a counter-majoritarian force, in that through its power of judicial review, it can strike down legislation passed by the representatives elected by the people, and thus acts as a check on not just other branches of government, but on the will of the majority. Although historians of the court consider this latter view of its role something of a myth, Roosevelt certainly seems to have held it, at least until the court turned his way. But what about today? Can this Supreme Court be considered a quote-unquote packed court dominated by partisan activists poised to act counter to the will of the people? If we are looking for proof of a concerted effort to pack the bench of the Supreme Court and federal courts generally with justices who will take a conservative view in all their decisions, we need look no further than the Federalist Society. You may have heard of this organization before, but now, after my discussion of Adams' midnight appointments, you know that their name could easily be interpreted as a reference to the original court packers, the Federalists. Starting out during the Reagan era as a group of conservative and libertarian law students mentored by Antonin Scalia, they bemoaned the atmosphere of liberal academia and advocated for a more originalist view of the Constitution. Since then, the organization has grown by leaps and bounds, 
mainly due to a vast influx of funding from donors with deep pockets, so that now it boasts several tens of thousands of members, law professors, politicians, pundits, and judges. In fact, many in the field see the Federalist Society as their best shot at securing a judgeship because the organization has established itself as the go-to for any Republican president, providing a short list of candidates who conform ideologically with their conservative principles. So you have lawyers and judges towing this ideological line, kowtowing to the Federalist Society and their rubric in order to secure a better chance of advancement. At this point, the majority of the Supreme Court bench attained their lifetime appointments by meeting this de facto conservative requirement of membership in the Federalist Society. Chief Justice John Roberts, Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and now Amy Coney Barrett, who seems to have been groomed by the society to take her seat on this packed bench. An enlightened centrist might argue that both sides are guilty of such judge grooming. But in fact, the frequently cited liberal counterpart to the Federalist Society, the American Constitution Society, was only formed in 2001 when the growing influence of the Federalist Society became clear after the Supreme Court handed George W. Bush the presidency. The ACS, however, is still in its infancy, without the deep funding and membership that the Federalist Society enjoys. Now, it may be hard to imagine anyone these days being wide-eyed and dewy-eyed enough to argue that the Supreme Court really is the nonpartisan institution that idealists would like it to be. But the mere fact that the Supreme Court bench is and always has been a partisan battleground doesn't mean that taking back a majority for the other side is enough of a justification for expanding the court. In fact, such an argument should rightly be viewed as squalid and distasteful. Actually, I don't shrink from suggesting that the ruthless tactics employed by conservatives like Mitch McConnell and the Federalist Society to take their majority might call for equally obdurate countermeasures and that quote-unquote balancing the court would not be an unfair characterization of such measures. However, there is a far more virtuous case to be made for the expansion of the Supreme Court. Beyond a possibly pressing need to thwart a countermajoritarian power grab, there is the fact, as made evident throughout this history of the Supreme Court, that having a deeper bench would allow the highest appeals court in the country to take on far more cases than it currently deigns to hear. More decisions would result in more consistency and clarity in American jurisprudence. More cases means more chances for judicial review and interpretation, which makes the Supreme Court a far more effective check on the executive and legislative branches of government as well. And more justices able to rotate and interchange in differently structured quorums would vastly reduce the influence of swing votes 
Right now, just as swing states decide presidential elections, swing justices decide most important interpretations of the Constitution. Reducing the disproportionate power of the swing justice will then, in turn, reduce partisan activism on the court. Or at least it will diminish the perception of its politicization. And that is just what the U.S. needs right now, to turn down the country's partisanship generally. This might be a hot-button partisan issue, but it represents a path to a little less division. Thanks for listening to Historical Blindness. Special thanks go out to my partner patrons, Joe, Jacob, Robert, Diane, Marina, Emily, Devlin, and Ian. I'd like to see all of you in my chambers. Some music on this episode was provided by Alex Kish. Visit alexkishmusic.com and contact him to get compositions for your own projects. Additional music from Kai Engel and from Kevin McLeod, licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution License. Check out the show notes for a list of the tracks used. Remember, all active patrons on December 1st will be entered in a drawing to win a new set of studio earbuds, so be sure you visit patreon.com slash historicalblindness and pledge to get ad-free episodes and exclusive content, as well as a chance to win. And shop studio.com between November 23rd and 30th to get 35% off everything, plus an additional 10% off using the promo code HISTORICAL. You can also support the show by signing up for a 14-day trial of The Great Courses Plus or a free 30-day trial of Audible at my custom URLs. Find those links in the show notes. On the website historicalblindness.com, you can find the blog posts with transcripts of the episodes and bibliographies for further reading. And you can make one-time donations there to support this podcast or at the PayPal link in the show notes. Follow the show on social media and give it a review, especially on Apple. Until next time, remember, partisan appeals to historical precedent are often highly selective cherry-picking whatever examples support an agenda and striking from the record any material that doesn't help their case. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. 
So search for the French Revolution today.